You know, this ministry is fantastic. Not, not, I mean, the, the gifts are wonderful. The gifts are wonderful. But did you know that every participant who receives one of these, they are invited to a follow-up Bible study, where it's not just hear stuff from Americans. It is hear stuff that tells us about Jesus. And so do be in prayer for those who receive um, these gifts, that not only these boys and girls, but also their parents would come to a saving knowledge of Jesus. Well, this morning, we are looking at Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 15. This is God's holy word. It is without error and is authoritative. It is written by God, and it has what we need in it. So hear and listen carefully. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, And on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, who I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, saying, excuse me, shouting, These men have, who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus." And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money and security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived there, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. And so we do thank you, O God, for your word. And we ask that by your spirit, you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Help us, Lord, to earnestly, eagerly attend to the preaching of the word. We ask this for the preacher and hearer alike. And it's in the name of Jesus, our Savior, we ask it. Amen. Let me ask you something. If you were an ice cube on the ground, wouldn't you be eager to get back in the freezer? If you were a fish on the bank, wouldn't you be eager to get back in the water? If you were a soldier in the trenches of warfare, wouldn't you be eager for peace? We get eager about a lot of things. Let me ask you this question. If you were a sinner saved by Christ facing constant temptation, dealing with trials and hardships, navigating life in a world that is upside down, with responsibilities at work, family, and at church, even as you try to make a peace with your past and your hurts and your failures and your hardships, wouldn't you be eager 
to be grown by Christ, eager to be equipped for the life that is ahead of you, eager to have your faith strengthened. The question I'd like to ask this morning is, are we eager for spiritual growth? My prayer for you and my prayer for myself is that the Lord would make us more and more eager for the Word of God, for the preached Word, and for spiritual growth. As we ask the question about being eager to come to church and eager to sit under the Word of God, we have to ask the question, what is there to be eager about? You know, there are lots of reasons not to come to church. I think one of the things that COVID did is it actually exposed a lot of the reasons we already had. And it just made it easier to not be eager about coming to church. There are lots of reasons not to go to church. You know, we get eager about a lot of things. Football, sports, children, vacation, lunch. We get eager about a lot of things. And sometimes the things we get eager about are are pretty silly. There have been times that we have lost sleep over what we're eager about the next day. Have you ever lost sleep because you're so eager to go to the house of the Lord? I don't know that I have. We're eager about not missing things, so we set reminders and alarms. I'll set alarms for the alarm, and then I'll set a reminder on my phone so it reminds me about what the alarm was for. Have we ever set an alarm so that we would get ready for church, besides waking up ready to go? What's there to be eager about coming to church? Well, nothing less than Jesus, His person and His work. So after being thrown out of Philippi, Paul and Silas travel along a major highway called the Ignatian Way. It would have taken them uh, all the way uh, towards Rome if they'd kept going. The Ignatian Way was a really nice, modern road for those days. It was about 20 feet wide. This was a, a big, major highway for the day. It was a nice road. But, you know, they still would have been nursing wounds. If you remember in Philippi, they had been beaten very badly, put in stocks, uh, it was a form of torture, those stocks. The Lord did a, a mighty work there, but, but there were bruises all over the body. And, and they're, they're walking. They're walking many miles. Were they limping? Were they walking slowly? As they nursed wounds, they headed to the important and populous city of Thessalonica, where there were about 200,000 people living there. Now that's a lot of people, especially for an ancient city. That's just some fewer than the city of Montgomery. It was a huge economic center, an important center of trade on this very important highway. This was a great place for Paul to go and to declare the gospel because not just those people who live there, but also others who might be visiting the marketplace, visiting for trade, they might hear the gospel and take home the Word of God with them. So he enters, according to his custom, into the Jewish synagogue. Now, this had not always gone well for Paul. Time after time after time, he enters into the Jewish synagogue and things don't go well for him. Things seem to go well for him for about three or four weeks. And he reasons with them from the Scriptures, from our only source of what we do and what we believe. What does he preach? Well, he preaches Christ, his person and work. We see this in verse 3. What is he doing? He is explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. You know, a lot of times when we get together, we like to talk about things that have just recently happened to us. 
That's what we all do. It's, it's part of fellowship. Now, now, Paul likely had bruises all over his body. And he stands up and he begins to speak. And here is this man. He limps to the place where he speaks. And he starts speaking and he's got bruises all over his arm, all over his head. He's, his eyes are swollen. His, his lips would have been uh, broken and bleeding. And what does he do? Let me tell you about what happened to me at Philippi. No. He goes straight to Jesus. For there is no hope in Paul. There's only hope in Christ. When we think about a biblical sermon, when we think about being eager to sit under a biblical sermon, a biblical sermon is one that doesn't point to the preacher, but one that points to Jesus. And if I ever point you to myself, then I have failed. Instead, the goal of a sermon is not to point to self or to cleverly devise myths or to the latest guru on CNN. Rather, it is to point us to Jesus. What, or rather, whom does he uh, present? He presents Jesus, his person and his work. He presents Jesus, his person, that is, his nature, who he is. And what does he say? He says, y'all have been waiting for a long time for the Messiah, the one that the Old Testament Scriptures would come. Y'all meet every week to, to study the Old Testament Scriptures, looking for the Messiah. And guess what? This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, he is the Christ. But then he talks about his work, what he did, that it was necessary for him to suffer, die, and be raised from the dead. Is anything ever necessary for God? Theologians talk at this point about divine necessity. I mean, nothing outside of God makes him do anything. But rather, according to the system that he had set up, we had transgressed his law and there must be payment for it. And he loved us so much that in order for us to be saved, there had to be great sacrifice that the Son of God, the Son of Man, had to come into the world and it was necessary for you and me, for us to be saved and our sins forgiven, it was necessary that he must die and be raised from the dead. He talks about... Um, why this happened, right? I mean, you, you do realize that this one verse is a summary of the sermons that he would have preached. He's there for three Sabbath days, and so it's a summary of what he's talking about. And so certainly he would have gotten into the, the why he had to suffer. And the first why is because as the Old Testament prophecies said it was going to happen. Over a thousand specific fulfillments of prophecy um, were, were fulfilled by Jesus. Right? He fulfilled over a thousand specific prophecies of the Old Testament, that the numbers are just astronomical. That could be by chance, right? The Old Testament said it was going to happen. But second, why was it necessary for Jesus to die? It was because He loves you. We're going to talk about being eager for spiritual growth this morning. Did you, have you ever thought about Jesus being eager to go to the cross? Now, in his human nature, you see him in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before. He says, Father, if there's any way for this cup to pass from me, please. But if not, your will, not mine. Hebrews tells us later that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. For the joy? What's joyful about the cross? There's nothing in the moment of the experience of him dying on the cross, not just the physical pain, but the spiritual pain, as he withstood the, the wrath of God, the, he absorbed it for us, that He might point it away from us, that we might have our sins forgiven. 
What is there to be eager about, about sitting under the preaching of the Word? What's there eager to be about going to church? It's because the content is all about Jesus. The one who loved you and gave himself up for you. The one who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The one who humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. The one who at the right time died for the ungodly. The one that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that by his poverty you might become rich. The one who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. The one who has set us free. For freedom he has set us free. The one who has given us the right to become children of God. Paul didn't give them cleverly devised myths. What he made known to them was the power of the gospel, of the good news. And here's the thing, the preaching of Christ will turn your life upside down. It will turn your life upside down. And this is what happens in Thessalonica. The month or so that Paul and Silas are there, as they preach, we have several groups who go through revival, whose lives, their lives not just here on earth, but those in the age to come, are turned upside down. Look at verse 4. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great number, or excuse me, a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. We have three main groups here. First, some of the Jews were persuaded. Some of those with Jewish background in the synagogue were persuaded and called in the name of Jesus. But there was a great, a great harvest of souls amongst those devout Gentiles who had been investigating the Old Testament, who didn't come from a Jewish background. The, the ESV says a great many. It's hard to translate the Greek. It basically says a lot, a lot. right? A lot, a lot become Christians. Do you think about how many it would take in our town to say that a great many happened to it? I was thinking about if a great many people um, dyed their hair pink. Right? I'm not saying you should. But at what threshold would it have to hit in our congregation or in our community for you to say that a great many had pink hair? I mean, that means when you go to Walmart, if you saw two or three say, man, what, something's going on, they came from a club or something. But if you saw a couple dozen in Walmart, you say, man, there are a great many folks here who have pink hair. A great many people became believers that day. And, and not only that, but, but not a few, classic understatement, right? Not a few of the leading women. There's great revival here. Their lives have been turned upside down. What's e- why should we be eager about going to the house of the Lord? Why should we be eager about sitting under the preached word? Because it will turn your world upside down. How had their lives been turned upside down? How, is, how, have, how has your life been turned upside down if you're a Christian? Well, the Scripture has several different ways of talking about what happens when we become believers. We go from death to life, from dark to light, from being God's enemy to being adopted as His child. We go to being bound for heaven to being, excuse me, bound, hev- hell-bound to heaven-bound. From being in bondage to our sin to being emancipated and freed from our sin. From hating God to loving God. From children of wrath to children of God. Ransomed, redeemed, rescued, freed, cleansed, forgiven. United to Christ, born again, born from above, justified, regenerated. When we become Christians, we become new people. And that will turn your life upside down. That will turn your world upside down. Because here's the thing, as we think about as believers in Christ... What happens when we become believers is in this moment we realize our lives aren't about us. 
And our world goes from being centered on us and our desires. Instead, we realize that our lives, they're part of God's story. There's a worldview change that happens. Suddenly, it's not about me anymore. It's about Jesus. And here's the thing. As believers, we need to be reminded of that daily. So Thomas uh, built us a great fire pit. He's been working on it for a couple weeks now. And we, um, we had our inaugural fire last night, and it was wonderful. But you know what happens when one of those embers gets far from the fire, right? That's the old illustration. It loses its heat. It doesn't stop being a coal. It doesn't stop being a piece of wood. That's what happens as believers, that when we, when we separate ourselves from the people of God, We lose that fire. We lose that sense of eagerness, of urgency. We forget that our lives have been turned upside down and we start thinking how we used to think. We need the people of God gathering together regularly as the people of God to remind us, to reorient our lives of who our lives are really about. Well, in our text, we see that not everybody's real eager for this. We see this in verses 5 through 9. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money and security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. These people did not want emancipation from their sins. Instead, they rejected Christ as Savior. They saw nothing to be eager about. Why? Because it would have meant the end of the status quo. They were jealous because they were losing control. You know, if these Jews in the synagogue, they saw their numbers dwindle as people were freed of their sins and and had their worlds turned upside down, and it didn't fit their categories anymore, and so they were quite jealous. And as such, they were blind to the truth and their need of salvation. You know, we've talked about this some in the last few weeks, but it is not until the Holy Spirit opens our eyes that we see our need for Jesus. We talked about that this morning in our uh, youth Sunday school. In Acts chapter 16, verse 14, with the conversion of Lydia, we read this, The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. You cannot be eager for something unless you see a need of it. You can't be eager for something unless it is exciting. I am never eager to go to the dentist. Right? (laughs) Even when I know I need to, even when I'm in pain, I'm still not eager to go to the dentist. It's not beautiful. It's not lovely to me. I'm thankful for it. Is the gospel lovely to you? Is Jesus lovely to you? If He's not, then my friends, we've all been in that place. Hear me. If Jesus doesn't seem lovely to you, then pray that the Lord would show you the loveliness of Christ again. You know, the opposite of eagerness is apathy. And it's so easy to slide back into indifference. It's easy in the everyday hustle and bustle to lose that eagerness, isn't it? It is so easy. 
In fact, we could say that the Christian life is, is constantly fighting that backward drag of being apathetic to the things of God. And when we get in that routine, it gets harder to break, doesn't it? We've all been there. Well, the Thessalonican Jews, they hire a bunch of no-good loafers uh, in the marketplace. They form a mob and uh, they, they attack the house where Paul and Silas have been staying, the house of Jason. Paul and Silas aren't there and so they grab Jason and some brothers. These will do, right? We just need some blood. And so they drag them before the assembly of the people and before the city authorities and they charge them with the ones who had turned the world upside down elsewhere. They've come here too. Now here's the thing. That's exactly what they've been doing. Not from a, uh, um, a political situation, but from a spiritual one. And then he said, and, and they're, they're causing sedition. They're saying that there's another king and his name is Jesus. So the authorities forced Jason and the others to pay a bond. And the, basically the bond is to make sure that, hey, these people in your house, they got to leave. And if they don't, you're going to be in trouble. Well, in order to keep the peace, Paul and Silas, uh, or at least Paul, heads down the road. Well, they had been going on the Ignatian Way, but now they head to a place called Berea. It's about 30 miles away. And there they find a completely different group of Jews. Uh, we see this in verses 10 through 11. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. You know, it's, uh, it's a blessing as a preacher to be able to preach to those who eagerly receive the Word of God. And, they, and, and Paul walks in uh, to the synagogue, and he starts preaching again. And, and it's an entirely different reception. And really, in these Bereans, we see a great um, paradigm of participation and attendance in public worship. The, the first thing we see here is that they receive the word. They receive the word. Now, in order to, the word receive means to receive favorably, to give ear to, to make one's own, to appropriate, to accept. But you know, it, it, you can't receive something unless you pay attention. Now, in, in college, I was at church. I was at church a lot. But you know, the, the Sundays that I was there after game days, I might as well not have gone, because you stay up late. And then you go to the band party afterwards. And about 2 o'clock in the morning, you roll into bed. Then you sit there for another hour trying to go to sleep. And then you set your alarm, you roll out to get to church. And you sit there, and the only time I'm thinking about the sermon is on the way out the door wondering what I just heard. Because right? I was half asleep. You know, but here's the thing. At the, at, the, at the game, man, I participated in that game, didn't I? In the student section, you participate in every play. You don't observe anything, do you? You participate in the game. And you only sit down at halftime. That's the only time you're allowed to sit down. But when it came to Sunday morning, I was not a participant in worship. I was a slothful observer. The picture of the Berean church here is being actively engaged in what was said by Paul and Silas, listening intently, processing it carefully. Let me just talk practically for a second. It is hard to listen to a sermon. It is hard. Did I hear an amen, I think? <laughs> right. Especially this one, preacher. Uh, 
It is hard to listen to a sermon. I think it is easier to preach a sermon than it is to listen to one. I'm wholeheartedly convinced of that. I would rather be in the pulpit because my mind will stay engaged. My paycheck depends on it, right? It's harder to sit in the, in the pew thinking about lunch, thinking about how long this preacher's going to preach. I'm a preacher, and so I want to criticize what the preacher's saying. I'm trying the whole time, Lord, forgive me, forgive me, forgive me. It's hard to listen to a sermon. It takes work. And when we're not prepared, when we're not prayed up, when we're not ready for it, we might as well be asleep in the pew. You know why I don't preach with my glasses on, do you? I remember one time I wore my contacts one Sunday, and I thought, man, these people are tired today. <laughs> then I realized, oh, it's not just today. So I take my glasses off so I can't see your faces. Uh, it, is a, it is a blessing to earnestly come to the Word of God. Are you prayed up? Are you prayed up? Are you hearing the passage for the first time when you walk in the door? It's a wonderful thing to read the passage a couple days beforehand. You know what I'm preaching though? I'm going through Acts 1 to 28. Have you prayed for the preacher? I can't pay attention unless I take notes. I can't. And I throw my notes away as soon as I walk out the back door. The goal is not so that I'll have something to look at, because I know I'll never look at it again. It is so that I'll stay engaged. Listening to a sermon is hard work. And so they received the word, they paid attention to it, and they did it with all eagerness. All eagerness here, the all means the highest amount possible of eagerness. It's kind of like the kid in the candy shop or the gun nut going into Bass Pro Shops, or at least pre-COVID when they had guns. I mean, you go in and it's just wonderful, and thankfully you've left your billfold in the car, right? Are we eager like that to go to church? I need the community of God's people. I need encouragement. I need fellowship. Don't you? Satan would make you think that you are okay doing things on your own with a casual relationship with Jesus and a casual relationship to the local church. And that's a lie. He is the father of lies, by the way. I struggle with being more critical than eager. I struggle with being more sleepy than eager. I struggle with being, well, more anything than eager. Well, they eagerly received it. But they weren't just eager. They did something vitally important. They took what Paul and Silas said, and they checked it with the Word of God. Have you ever heard the be a Berean line? That's what it's talking about. Taking what you hear and checking it with the Word. Don't ever take my word for it. That's what I love about our church is we have godly elders who are tasked especially with this role to make sure what I say is biblical. But you do the same. If you ever hear something that you don't think is in the Word of God, you come tell me. And if not me, go tell an elder. Check it. Make sure it's right. Well, the result is there's revival again in Berea. God did great work there. That's what happens when your world is turned upside down. But Satan had his claws, and those jealous Jews in Thessalonica, and they traveled the 30 miles by foot to make sure that revival didn't happen anymore in Berea. And the very thing that the Jews had accused uh, Paul and Silas of doing in Thessalonica, that's stirring everything up, that's what they do. Same word in Greek in both places. That's what they do in Berea. Satan plays dirty, and he's not afraid of double standards. As a result, Paul has to leave. But Silas and Timothy, uh, they stay. Timothy seems to have rejoined them. We're not real sure where he was for a while. The Christians from Berea escort Paul to Athens where 
Paul will defend the faith uh, next week in our passage in an entirely different way to a different group of people. Well, how do we land this plane? Well, we are only eager for those things that we see a need of in our lives or are exciting to us. Is there eagerness in your life for spiritual growth? And if there's not, pray. Those are prayers that God loves to hear. Lord, help me. Help me to want to grow. Help me to want to want to grow. Would you consider fasting even over a meal this week? That you might dedicate that time at lunch to pray, Lord, Lord, help me be eager for spiritual growth. One of the things I'm eager for is the coming of Jesus because, you know, at that point, a lot of the parts of my job will be no more. I look forward to that. You know, the really hard parts, the entering into hard situations and lives. It is my blessing as a pastor to do that. But don't you yearn for that kind of stuff to end? I long for the day where I don't have to bury folks anymore. I'm eager for injustice to end. I'm eager for abuse, neglect, and oppression to end. I'm eager for the bonds of pornography to be taken off of marriages and for relationships to be vibrant as we experience the rest and the shalom, the peace of the new heavens and the new earth. Until that day, let us eagerly pursue Christ. Let's pray. And so, Christ, we eagerly pursue you now, and we ask by your grace that you would cause us to eagerly pursue you the rest of the week. It's in the name of Jesus we ask it. Amen.